Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name's Ellen Harve Griffith-Jones. I'm here representing uh, literature across frontiers, and it's a pleasure to be able to have a debate on something that's very close to my heart uh, this afternoon. We have uh, three uh, very experienced and very uh, interesting panelists to contribute to the conversation about should we still speak about small language literatures? And before I introduce uh, the panelists, I'll just say a few words about the background, perhaps to the title of the session that we're going to have this afternoon. I work in the uh, field of minority or minoritized or small languages, and I've been working in that field for about 30 years or so. Sometimes we've been using the terminology of non-hegemonic languages. Sometimes we've been using the terminology of regional, lesser used, minority, minoritized, and so on. But in addition, we are working closely with the languages of small nation states, as well as the languages of communities and nations that are not sovereign states. And so for many years, this issue of being called small has been some kind of catch-all terminology that allows us to discuss the literature scenes of languages that coexist with a dominant language, such as the case in my own country of Wales with Welsh and English, or indeed with Catalan and Spanish and so on, as well as uh, allowing us to discuss uh, the situations of languages that have smaller numbers of speakers, so languages under, let's say, 5 million or 10 million or sometimes less than 100,000 speakers. So that kind of terminology of small languages has allowed us to bring about a discussion that shares the commonalities as well as identifies the differences between various language groups and their uh, literatures. But I was struck by a comment made by the Icelandic poet Sjorn, who said, there's no such thing as a small languages. There are no there are no such things as small languages. What we have are languages with smaller numbers of speakers. And because that comment really resonated um, in my imagination, if you like, in, in the way that I personally live my life, but also in the way that over 60 million people within the European Union across the various different states live their lives, or even more millions of people across the world live their lives in not necessarily a small language, but a language in which they live their lives, but that have fewer numbers of speakers than neighboring languages. So that's the background, if you like, to the idea of this panel, that we should perhaps question the notion of a small language in the same way as perhaps we've no questioned the notion of minority in, in the past as well. So let me introduce uh, the panel to you. Um, on, my on my far left, we have um, Belle Olid, who is a writer, translator, and activist. She made her debut as a fiction writer in 2009 with a book about child sexual abuse. Um, and that was awarded um, the BTV Quarti Prize for Best Children's Book of, of the Year. Her first novel then, Una Terra Solitaria, A Solitary Land, was published in 2011. 
where she explores themes like migration, sexuality, abuse, and tells the stories of three women from the same family, and that was awarded the Documenta Prize for Fiction. In 2017, she stood as a candidate in the for the leftist pro-independentist coalition, uh, the COP or the CUP or the Candidatura d'Unitat Popular in the elections um, of the 21st of December that were called following the referendum of the 1st of October 2017 in Catalonia. She's translated over 40 books, mainly children's literature, into both Catalan and Spanish, and she translates from English, from German, from French, Italian, Spanish, and Catalan. Uh, Belle was uh, president of SEATO, the Conseil Européen des Associations de Traducteurs Littéraires, the European Council of Literary Translators Associations. She was president of, the, of SEATO from 2013 to 2015. And since 2015, she's the president of the Association of Catalan Ri uh, Language Writers um, that has a membership of over 1,500. She's the youngest person to be elected to that post, and she's actually the same age as the organization. She's a regular columnist, and last month as well, she published her latest book, which explores our attitudes to sex and sexualities what we talk about and what we don't talk about. That's entitled in Catalan, Poyem, which she suggested as translation would be Wanafak. So that's Belle Olive for you. Okay, our next um, panelist is uh, Tlir Gwyn Lewis. Now Tlir is a Welsh language author, poet and essayist. He studied at Cardiff and Oxford Universities and he completed a doctorate on the work of W.B. Yeats and his Welsh contemporary T. Gwyn Jones. His first book of prose, Rhyw Vlodai Rhyfel, Some Flowers of War, was published in 2014 and won the Creative Non-Fiction category in the 2015 Wales Book of the Year Award. And his poetry collection, Storm Arwineb Hail, Storm on the Face of the Sun, was shortlisted in the poetry category of the same year. His short story collection, Fabula, was published in 2017 and was chosen by Wales Literature Exchange for the 2017 bookcase. Also in that year, Tlir was selected as one of the 10 new voices from Europe, part of the Literary Europe Live uh, project led by Literature Across Frontiers, uh, he performed his work in Poland at Station Literature Festival and in Cosmopolis in Barcelona, again in 2017. And earlier this year, Tlir participated in the India-Wales Poetry Connections, taking part um, in poetry translations uh, workshops and in, um, in the Kerala Literature Festival, performing his work with Mayalalam poets and other poets from different parts of Europe. This summer, he was included in a special Welsh language prose edition of Words Without Borders uh, with four other writers and his short story, Dolores Morgan's Letters from the Far East, which was translated by Katie Gramich, is available to read online. And then next we have uh, Michal O'Connor. Sorry, I've lost my paper here. <laughs> Sorry. 
Michal is an Irish language uh, publisher, writer, and translator. Uh, he's based at Connemara in the Irish-speaking Geltocht there. In 1985, he set up a publishing house, uh, which has become one of the principal Irish language publishers, um, publishing over 600 um, Irish language uh, books. As a writer, he's published short stories, novels, poetry, plays. Um, you can read his short story, The Colors of Man, on the RTE website. It's translated from uh, Irish into uh, English by Gabriel Rosenstock. Um, he has written uh, novels um, that have been shortlisted for the Irish, uh, Irish Times Literature Awards in 2001. Uh, his poetry collection was published in the late 80s. His work has been translated into various languages, including Romanian, Croatian, Albanian, German, Slovenian, as well as English. And as a translator himself, Michal has translated from English into Irish, um, primarily the works of uh, Martin McDonagh, uh, the plays which have received acclaimed productions in the Galway International Arts Festival. He's also translated uh, for film, and he is a member of Orthdonna, the Irish Association of Artists, whose membership is uh, extended just to 250 uh, people across various arts forms. So quite a distinguished panel and uh, quite a long introduction from, from me. But I'd like to start with you, uh, Michal. As we've heard, your uh, translator into Irish. Your work has been translated from Irish. You publish, you write poetry, you write plays, you write prose. You're doing kind of everything that we're talking about in the field of, let's say, small language literatures in order to make that work reach audiences at home as well as, as further afield. I wonder what's your specific perspective on that relationship perhaps between home audiences and audiences for your work outside your language speaking community, if you like? Um, I suppose one of the nicest things somebody said to me, um, an Albanian publisher here uh, 10 years ago, uh, when she was translating my short stories into Albanian. And she was very excited about one of the stories because she said, oh, my people will love this. The people in my area, the people in my country, they will really love this story. And that was heartwarming because I think literature normally travels well. And I read an awful lot of translations from around the world. I, I only read uh, through English. Uh, but I am reading lots and lots of translation all the time. And I think it is vital important uh, for me personally to give me new ideas, to see how other people approach short stories or novels, and um, to, to um, develop, develop myself as a writer. I think a writer is always hungry and looking for more. Uh, we're never satisfied. We, we kind of take, take so much things in. So therefore, um, I find it very exciting reading books from what we call the lesser used languages. Um, English is my, my second language, and, and um, but I, I, I know why, but I prefer reading translations into English than original English. 
maybe that is just a personal thing, maybe not. Uh, and then as a publisher, I mean, I try to bring the work of, of Irish language writers to the world. Um, we are very lucky in Ireland in that, that we have a very high quality of writing, you know, and we're famous for that, for with Joyce and Beckett and and um, the all the major writers we've had, Seamus Heaney, William Butler Yeats. Um, the good thing is, is that that I think improves the standard. You know, there are, I know there are many many writers in Ireland, but you know, high standard is expected of you as a writer. And for me, promoting the Irish language, I like to think that those who write in Irish are as good as those who write in English. And a lot of them are, but they don't get the same exposure. And that is our biggest problem. If uh, a book is published in, uh, in, in Irish, it will probably not be reviewed in the Irish Times or in the, in the English language media. Uh, it will hardly be uh, on the on the um, on the television, uh, you know, on the on the chat shows. You won't have the authors there like you have all the English authors. And there are, believe me, an awful lot of very good writers writing in English in Ireland at the moment. Uh, but as I said, for for me, and it is my mission to show them, the people here and around the world, there is another language. It is thousands of years old. Uh, we have a fair amount of high quality literature. And we want to bring that to the world. And coming to Frankfurt for over 20 years now, I started coming in 1996, when Ireland were the guest here. And I've been coming every year. And some of our books are in 13, 14 languages now. Um, our biggest success is Shane Achille by Martin O'Kine. And the Czech translation was published a year ago. And it has sold three thousand copies in the Czech language. So if that was published in Ireland today, it would probably sell 500 copies. So maybe I've gone a, maybe that's a roundabout answer to your question. And to what extent are you, do you publish translations of Irish language writing in English translation for the home markets in Ireland as well as the uh, Anglophone reading uh, uh, community out, uh, outside Ireland? Uh, we do a fair amount of that. Obviously, people here can't read Irish in general. Um, so there's no point in me coming in here to Frankfurt unless we have English translations. So with some help funding from the Arts Council, we commission uh, translations into English uh, of several novels, short stories, poetry. Sometimes they are published in English, maybe not always but at least the other foreign publisher can, can read the Germans, the French, the Spanish, whatever. They can read the this English translations and then make a decision based on that. So I, I always say English is very, very important for us to use as a tool to bring the Irish language literature to the wider world. And we also do a lot of bilingual books in poetry and that. We also do it because there are several universities in the US around the world who teach Irish studies and now more and more of them are teaching Irish language literature through English as part of the studies. So, you know, as I say, I, I want to keep telling people uh, we have more than, you know, than Joyce and Beckett and Yeats. There is another strand of literature uh, which we like the world to know about as well.
But 3,000 3, uh, copies in, in Czech translation sounds uh, very impressive. I think that uh, anybody would be quite pleased with those kinds of uh, sales of their own literature in translation. Sir, if I can bring you into uh, the conversation now. Uh, you write in Welsh. You know that you've got a, perhaps, if you could sell 3,000 copies, you'd be pretty happy with that. I mean, I'm not sure how, how much your, your, your prose books sold, but they wouldn't be far off that either. Um, but you'd be happy with, with sales of around 3,000. You write in a language that's spoken by around half a million speakers, where literacy levels are reasonable, um, where there's a strong literary tradition, a, di a, a continuous literary tradition from the Middle Ages onwards, um, and previously before then as well, um, in terms of uh, oral tradition. But um, so when you write, are you writing addressing a specific audience? And are you, do you, does your eye perhaps look beyond the language community that you're writing within? And does your eye, with your international experience now, does your eye look beyond your, your home community, so to speak? Um, I think increasingly it does now. And that is a lot to do with, as you mentioned in the introduction, some of the more recent experiences I've been fortunate to have um, in terms of going to somewhere like India and finding connections with poets in Malayalam. I mean, if we, if, if we're speaking about, you know, small languages, um, as you said, there's a, there's a scale within that uh, adjective, I suppose, because Malayalam language we were working with is poets. Um, this, this is a language with millions and millions of speakers, but it was still tended to uh, uh, be seen as a minority language within India, <laughs> which was quite astounding to me. But in terms of you know wh why I started to write and to who I who I was writing for, uh, um, certainly I I don't think it was um, anything that I was very conscious of um, looking outwards. It was very much speaking to this language community in which I lived and in which I, I I wrote. And I suppose you could look at that as slightly parochial in a sense, um, but I think I prefer to think of it as more sort of a self-sustained. Um, yeah. And to what extent, your, your work's been translated into English. It's been translated into French and German as well. Uh, though not published as full publications yet. What, what's been your experience of knowing that you're able to reach different audiences with, your, with the stories that you want to tell? Well, it's been wonderful. And what, what astounds me uh, always um, when I come to events like this and meet people like Belle is uh, this sense of true multilingualism, um, which is very different from our experience in Wales we have these two languages and it's this sort of, it's this um, dual relationship really between the English and Welsh, um, which you really have to negotiate very carefully. And uh, I mean, uh, uh, as with Michael, um, English is my second language, but in a sense, it's not the same as, it's something I've touched upon before. It's, it's not really, it's, it's almost as if you're as fluent in English as well. Do you know what I mean? It's not quite, 
a second language, a sort of a first and a half language almost in a sense. And so um, we're always looking, I think, being on that, especially in these pernicious uh, political times, being on that island with such a dominant language, such a dominant culture as well, always looking for ways to sort of bypass that. And um, I think it's been really great for me just to think in another way um, about the English language rather than as this dominant language that's sort of always there, it's shad throwing a shadow over your work, your life, and the way in which you interact with people. It's as a language that is a bridge to other languages. So, um, for example, I think the, ger the translation into German that you mentioned, that happened with the aid of having been translated into English first um, this summer, it was great to see one of my stories published in English to a wider audience. And so it's, it's quite liberating in a sense to have those other languages as well because it changes the dynamic of that dual relationship between English and Welsh. So English becomes a kind of a trampoline language, if you like, that you can bounce on it to get over to somewhere else as well as being a bridge language, perhaps. Yeah, because I think, again, it's, you know, is it, uh, I'm trying to sort of always question, is it a parochial mindset or is it something more defensive? There, there is, um, you know, we tend to come to these sorts of events and think of translation um, in an entirely, see it in an entirely positive light. And I think that sometimes there is a sense back home of being wary of translation, especially in a bilingual culture where one language is so much more powerful than the other, there's a fear of uh, language being reduced to mere symbols, empty symbols, um, and also of uh, emergence of, I, I mean, I work in my everyday work, I, um, I edit textbooks for school children, and there's always this sense that when you're translating words, you're bringing so much more than words into your own language, you're being bringing all those ideas in as well. And um, we have to be very careful in Wales, I think, of sort of translationese or bilingualese or reducing Welsh to just a translated version of English. It has, it has to be able to sustain its own set of ideas, its own way of looking at the world. Um, and in a sense, that comes back to the title of the session. I mean, should we still speak about small language literature? For me, at least, when I'm writing in Welsh, at the moment, it's still doesn't feel like a small language in the sense that if you have enough of your resources about you in your language, then it can feel deep, it can feel long in the sense that you've got all that sort of, <laughs> as you said, that history, that weight behind you, but it can feel expansive as well. And being able to retain that expansiveness in language, I think, um, in the face of a dominant language such as English, um, is a very important piece of work for the writer to try to undertake. So in a sense, you can feel a sense of empowerment, perhaps, through that responsibility or that, that history that the, that the language has and that you, you can find your own place in that, uh, in that literary environment, perhaps. I think so. And I think that, that the relationship with the... Um, to speak in sort of canonical terms, that literary tradition is quite interesting as well. I mean, uh, the 20th century, in a sense, was a period of decline for, for the language um, since the Industrial Revolution. 
and inevitably, I think when you're when you're faced with that sort of decline in numbers, you do tend to uh, react by looking backwards, trying to hark back to a more sort of golden age. And uh, a lot of writing in the 20th century was engaged in that sort of reclamation of looking towards the past, of engaging perhaps too much so with that long poetic tradition. But I think that finally, since certainly since the 90s when I was growing up, there was a real sense of, of change, of the emergence of a much more playful attitude towards writing in Welsh. And that's grown in a sense since devolution as well uh, and that process from 97 onwards. And I think people now are, are much happier um, when they're writing in Welsh. Yes, to engage with the poetic and the literary tradition, but to do so in a much more playful and a more selective way, I think, uh, than they used to do. And to be happy to dispense with some elements, to uh, use others, and to use it to look forward rather than backwards all the time, I think. Well, you, you write in a language, in, in the Catalan language, that's spoken by around 10 million people, or um, thereabouts at least, and that has relatively high literacy levels as well in the, in the language. Do you feel a, a similar sense of responsibility or a similar sense of being able to be playful with the language that you're using and a sense of um, place perhaps in your literary environment in the Catalan language as a writer? Um, I, it's, it's complicated because you were saying how English is not really your second language. Uh, my first language is actually Spanish. My, my family are Spanish speakers and I learned Catalan at school. Um, but there was uh, an emotional level to my choosing Catalan um, to write because Spanish for me was a language of violence. So I didn't want to write in that language. And I adopted Catalan as my own language as I grew older. And I speak Catalan to my children and most of my social relationships and, and work relationships as well are, are held in, in Catalan. Um, and then I am writing in a language that I learned as a second language, but that I have uh, made my own uh, throughout the years and basically reading all this history, um, all this literature um, that goes far, uh, a, a far way back. Um, and that is, 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 is wide and long tradition. Um, so when I chose to write in Catalan, um, I kind of felt like an intruder. So I paid really good attention to my grammar and everything was written like really good Catalan. Uh, also, I have taught Catalan at university for a long time, for 14 years. So as a language teacher, I, I thought this was very important. Um, but it's not because I didn't feel free to do whatever I wanted to do with my language. Uh, and I really admire other authors who are more playful with it. It was more of uh, something that uh, was inside me that was kind of limiting me in, in a way. Um, and when I write fiction, I am aware that I'm not as playful as I sometimes would like to be. Uh, when I write um, other kinds of like nonfiction, I, I play more because there's a lot of political uh, content as well. So I feel like I can, I can be more flexible. Um, but I, I was um, listening about this tension between the languages and which one's more powerful and not seeing one language as smashing yours. 
And I think it's important to make a difference between the language and the state. Uh, I live uh, in a state uh, which very clearly tries to smash my language, and we have Instituto Cervantes doing nothing for writers who write in Catalan or in any other language which is not Spanish. Uh, so if you speak in Gal if you write in Galician or in Basque uh, or in Asturiano or in Catalan, uh, you don't get any support by the government. So we need to create our own agencies and whatever. Um, but and also we are surrounded by English as as the common language that we use in lots of instances. And I can see my teenage children using English more and more uh, throughout their day. So. For me, it's not a problem of the language, which I, as a translator, I enjoy uh, learning as many languages as I can, and I think Spanish is a really beautiful language. It's more a problem of whether there's a state trying to crush you and make you disappear, um, which has been going on for ages, as you know, uh, with Catalan. Um, and then choosing Catalan as a way of resisting that violence uh, from the state, never the language, but from the state, uh, trying to bury uh, your means of, uh, of expression. Um, and then there's this um, subalternity uh, relationship uh, in which I get asked a lot why I chose to write in Catalan if I could uh, write in Spanish and reach millions of people more than in Catalan. Uh, the same way that I get asked a lot why I choose to write about women as characters or queer people as characters uh, instead of men, which would also give me like a larger audience. Um, and it's really insulting. <laughs> so I write in the language that I choose about the topics that I choose and that's nobody's business. And just the fact that I get asked these questions makes it a political stance. So this started as something that came from my emotional um, needs of expression, that I preferred language as a, as, as a, uh, a Catalan as the language uh, to express myself. And also I was more interested in, in women and queer characters um, per se, because I had read less about them than about men. Um, and then, because I was getting asked these questions all the time, it became very political. So, no, I don't want to write in Spanish, and no, I don't want to write about men. Uh, stop asking. <laughs> Um, and I think a lot of people who, who write in languages which are not hegemonic um, might feel this way, especially if there's a state against you. And I think there's a big difference between Denmark maybe, who have a similar number of, of people who could potentially read the books written in Danish. Um, it's really different from, from Catalan because you have a state in Denmark looking out for you and, and thinking that it is important. Or Iceland, where, I mean, there are much fewer people who, who can uh, read Icelandic, um, but the government really supports you and you get grants which can get you through writing a book, which doesn't happen at all in, if you write in Catalan. So I think it's, it's really, it's not a problem of, of the number of speakers even. It's more a problem of how much support you get from your community and how, how important uh, people in power think it is that to either encourage you to write and, and help you flourish or want to just smash you. you. You've used, made your case very clearly in which language you write and what you want to write about. When it comes to being a translator then, do you make the same kind of selections in terms of the work that you choose to translate? and into the languages that you translate into? Um, 
I've been translating professionally for 20 years now. And for the first uh, few years, I couldn't choose. I, it was my job, and I, I did what I could. Um, because if you're writing Catalan, you don't get paid much. So my, my real job was as a translator. So I just translated whatever I, I could. Uh, as, as I have been growing older and more well-known as a writer as well, I have been more able to choose what kind of work I want to do and what kind of work I don't want to do. Um, I do translate into Spanish sometimes, mostly books that I have already translated into Catalan, and then the, the same publisher published them in Spanish too, and, and since it's my mother tongue, I, I can also do that. Um, but it's, it's really exceptional. I mostly translate into, into Catalan. Again, not because I have anything against the Spanish language, obviously, but if I can choose, I, I prefer to translate into Catalan. And what I am really happy about is that I can get to choose the, um, the books that I want to translate. So this, this is really recent for me as a translator because from these 20 years of being a translator, only like the, four, the last four or five years I've been able to choose. Um, and I have been choosing a lot of children's books, which I think are really important that they are very well translated and I put a lot of effort into that. And uh, I work with people that I like, um, which is also, it has nothing to do with the, the topic of the book, but it, it makes me feel better uh, working with people that I like and who have like, yeah, I, I share some political views or whatever. And, um, and yeah, and I do prefer to translate uh, feminist writers if I can. And I have translated uh, Rebecca Solnit, um, Hope in the Dark, which I really enjoyed. And um, yeah, I, I like that I've come to a point in my life where I can choose and, and I enjoy it and I try to go more in that direction. Mike, Michal, you said that um, you you were hungry as a as a writer, that you wanted to to read as much as you can, and that you want to read in translation. But you also said that you you read in in English translation rather than in Irish translation. I mean, presumably you'd be still quite hungry if you were only confining yourself into reading um, other literatures in Irish translation. Yeah, th th that is true because I, I'm there. There are not a lot of books translated into Irish mother languages, uh, so therefore I read mostly through English. There are lots and lots in English, as you know. Um, some publishers do do um, promote what you would probably call unknown writers from other countries in the Irish language. Uh, usually, maybe if it's, if there's some. A uh, translator author is dedicated. They will. They want to go ahead with the book. They approach the publisher, and a book comes out of that. So that is normally how it happens. It's it's not done on any structured basis. Um, whereas if thousands of books are are, are published in um, into in um, in English from all sorts of languages. So that's a simple reason why I, I read um, in English. In translation, I have when I'm picking a translation, it depends on what the need is sometimes. I have translated plays into Irish because there are not many new contemporary plays being written in Irish. Um, so that's why I did the Martin Midgener plays. Also, the other reason why I did the Martin Midgener plays is they are based in the Irish-speaking area, you know, in Connemara, in the, in the, and actually, you know, some uh, critics said that they were even better in Irish than in English, you know, um, because they, they sit so comfortably in the, in the language. Um, at the moment, I am translating short stories by an Irish writer called Liam O'Flaherty from the Iron Islands, who was a native speaker. 
uh, but who wrote in English in the 50s, 60s, 70s, because he wanted to survive as a writer. So most of his work is in English. Um, I feel he is neglected even in English in Ireland. Most of his books are out of print. So at the moment I'm translating 30 of his stories into Irish. Um, that's kind of a labor of love, you know, a project that I was able to do it myself. And like, um, you know, it's, it's nice when you can do that. Absolutely. Sir, you said earlier, you mentioned sort of translatees as if translating into Welsh from English and perhaps from English only infuses Welsh with a sense of, of internal strangeness or an internal foreignization of the, of the language itself and from one dominant culture. I mean, what are your thoughts of translate about translating prose and creative writing into Welsh from more than one source? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I was I was speaking there more in terms of the sort of um, uh, everyday occurrences that you come across of uh, you know, bureaucratic forms and all the sort of the official apparatus of of English gets translated o almost thoughtlessly into Welsh quite often. But it was something I was going to pick up on there from from what Bell was saying was you know it, it really st struck me as you were mentioning that there that uh, um, of course I've been speaking about how lucky I was to get my work translated into other languages but uh, in the other direction um, th there is um, a shortage I think of uh, works being translated so like Michael in a sense if I want to discover other literatures um, other writers from across the world, I have to go again through the medium of English. And that wasn't always the case. I mean, uh, you mentioned earlier that I did some work on T. Gwynne Jones, who was just, uh, the amount of work that he produced in a lifetime was incredible. The man was a machine. And he was uh, very heavily engaged in uh, loads of uh, translation projects from Irish. He published about three or four books of translations of Irish poetry from Irish now, not from uh, English writers in Ireland, into Welsh, Scots Gaelic. Um, he was off translating Dante and Goethe and all ki kinds of sort of canonical European writers as well. Um, and uh, he did, uh, especially in the sort of first half of the 20th century, I think, have a lot of activity of that sort of people translating um, literary works into Welsh. And th that seems to have disappeared to a great degree, even though it is, again, coming back slowly with things that Mercator and LAF and the WLE are doing uh, in terms of uh, offering prizes for translation into Welsh poetry. So that's something that really needs to happen a bit more, I think. But that comes, comes back again to what I was um, uh, hearing uh, Bell speak there. Um, I might have sort of, when I was speaking about English, overemphasized slightly because what's peculiar is um, English, of course, is uh, um, the, the language of our next-door neighbours of England, but also of a vast uh, number of the population in Wales itself. And in terms of uh, English in that context, then uh, it's facing a lot of the same problems that the Welsh language is. I mean, the just sponsorship of the arts in general in Wales uh, is disappearing and falling away uh, all the time. And that's hitting both languages in Wales. Um, and sometimes 
it's good for writers like me to remember that it's not just the writers who write in Welsh who have these issues of um, being recognised, being heard, uh, being read outside of Wales. It's also writers in English in Wales. Uh, and I'm thinking about things like, you know, uh, literary prizes, uh, the man book, uh, and you've, you've got now a growing awareness, I think, of British writing, that it's a, a there's this sort of a broader definition, thankfully, finally, more uh, black and uh, uh, ethnic minority voices being included in the pantheon of British writing. But nonetheless, I think that um, uh, people are still sort of blind or deaf in uh, a lot of instances to writing from other parts of Britain, from the four nations, in a sense that, uh, especially if you're looking at we don't, we don't have much press to speak of in Wales, and if you're looking through the eye of the London press, it's astounding how little uh, attention is given in, in England, in, in Britain, really, to writing from uh, Wales or from Scotland or from Ireland. And uh, the UK being a very sort of capital-centric uh, state and uh, probably more so in, in publishing as, as, as in any other... Um, as in any other sector. Bell, you, you've a lot of experience in the European level of uh, network of um, translators uh, through your work with Seattle and so on. You mentioned uh, earlier the difference perhaps with between being a Catalan writer in a population of around six to 10 million and perhaps being a Danish writer in a population of the same the same uh, number of people. What what do you think um, brings together? What are the commonalities between the the those of us who live and write and publish in these sort of bilingual uh, contexts compared to those who write in small state languages that don't have? that uh, dominance of a state language that is over and above and bigger and more powerful than the language that they write and publish in? Um, what I found at the human level is that uh, my colleagues who are living similar or difficult political situations in their countries and, and who are writing in, in languages which are not supported by the state um, understand immediately what you <laughs> what your struggle is um, and, um, and are more sympathetic, basically. Um, and this has a lot to do also with the multilingualism that you were talking about earlier, um, how when you are used to be living in a multilingual uh, environment, and I, I, I can speak Spanish and Catalan at the same level, I think, um, and, um, and there's no grown-up in Catalonia who has Catalan as their mother tongue and ca they cannot speak Spanish, that just doesn't happen. It does happen the other way though. Um, is that we, we do understand um, a lot of the complexities of living in multilingual uh, environments, whereas people who live in monolingual environments um, just don't get it and they don't understand what the problem is. And the question of why don't you write in Spanish rises again because they don't they don't feel that there is a conflict there or they don't feel that there is an intrinsic value um, to a language uh, which goes 
far beyond the number of speakers that of speakers that the language has. So I, I have felt uh, more understood by writers and translators who work in environments uh, which are multilingual and who work with languages that are not supported by the state. And of course, uh, we're very much aware that Catalonia's population has grown immensely over the past 10 to 15 years or possibly 20 years now. Um, and that a lot of new languages have come into uh, the country and that writers in those languages are also beginning to find their voices uh, as well. I mean, to what extent is Catalonia now not just a matter of being a, a major publishing center for Spanish language work, also a center of um, Catalan language literature, but to what extent are we seeing other linguistic scenes being developed in Catalonia? Is that happening? Um, not really. Um, well, we are colonized by English, of course, like everybody else. So y if you speak English, you can live in Barcelona and not even bother to learn anything else than dos cervezas, por favor, and or duas cervezas, sisplau. Nobody learns Catalan if they come from an English-speaking country. Well, I mean, yeah, a lot of people do. Um, but not a lot of people. Um, so mostly they will just learn a few words in Spanish and they can get by and not even bother to know that Catalan exists if they don't want to. Um, where was this coming from? I this was coming through sort of uh, multilingualism, growing multilingualism oh yeah, yeah, in, yes. in Catalonia. Yeah, but um, the um, no, I think that migrant uh, families or people who come from migrant families like myself. My family came from the south of Spain. They moved there. I, I was born there and I adopted Catalan as my language. And the same thing is happening um, with children who come from other uh, language speaking uh, families that they will adopt either Spanish or Catalan as their uh, language, as their writing language and that's it. Um, and we have uh, Najat El Hachmi, for example, she comes from Morocco and she, she came to uh, Catalonia when she was four years old. So she went through school in Catalan and she writes in Catalan and she has won uh, some of the most important awards uh, for Catalan literature. And she writes about basically the same topics that I write about migration and women and sexuality uh, from another perspective. Um, so I think it's more like, um, writers who have been born in Catalonia or who have grown up in Catalonia, no matter where they come from, they will adopt either Catalan or Spanish as their working language and that's it. And they will talk about their realities, obviously, um, like we all do. Um, but um, but it's, it's not as if Barcelona was becoming some sort of like um, multilingual publishing thing, it's, it's not. Because uh, writers who write in other languages publish in other countries where this language are, are very strong. Um, and what from the Writers Association uh, in Catalan language, what we are trying to do is uh, trying to promote reading uh, and, and literature uh, within those communities in which we know that there's a smaller uh, cultural capital. So families don't have books at home uh, and they don't used to go to the library and they have like, yeah, little cultural opportunities. So we try to promote uh, reading in these communities through different projects uh, from very young ages, from babies and, and toddlers basically, up until they are teenagers. And we make, uh, we also do some uh, family work. So they, the parents read together with the children in whatever language they choose. 
and and we form a, a small library of very good uh, Catalan books uh, for children, so that they grow up with that, uh, trying somehow to build um, a, a language conscience for these very young people right now, so that in 20, 30 years, when they feel like they want to write and they want to become writers themselves, um, Catalan is a language that is emotionally uh, valuable for them. Can I just pick up on something that you mentioned just at the at, at the beginning there was you know that sense of um beca because i am i'm very aware that uh, I, t I tend to go uh, straight for the negative when i'm speaking about uh, my own culture very often and so I, i'm afraid of you know something like a negative nelly but uh, in a sense uh, that's what that's what speaking a small language of being aware of that sort of being in a minority does to you because Someone like me would go on holiday to Barcelona and would try to use a couple of Catalan phrases rather than, you know, because you're aware of uh, that in your own uh, language, in your own life, and so you want to try and use it. And, you know, you can sort of look at that from uh, uh, a funny angle, in a sense, because we tend to overdo it. I mean, I'm thinking of, um, uh, is it Graham Davis, who has a poem about, you know, people going to, Welsh people going on holiday, they tend to seek these things out, these uh, sort of oppressed minorities, and he's got a line, uh, okay, when someone goes to visit a city, they go, well, well, you know, nice city, now where's the ghetto? Or they go, uh, there's um, there's a song by Tatsbuerki, um, we always go to Brittany rather than to France on holiday, that sort of thing, we, we tend to seek out the minorities, but it does, that's what it does, uh, speaking a, a small language and writing in a small language is, it gives you a different perspective uh, on the world. It gives you a different way of thinking from the sort of the hegemony and, and the majority. And I think a, a, a very clear example of that is something that I know you and I both, Helene, we, we cling on to this as a sort of a faint glimmer of hope uh, in these dark times is that um, the Brexit votes, sorry to mention that, uh, that word in this conversation, but back in 2016, there, there was a trend of where there were higher percentages of Welsh speakers, um, there was a, a, an increased vote to remain in the European un Union. And so there is that sort of suggestion that if you are aware of uh, this uh, multilingualism, if you have more than one language, you have more than one way of looking at the world, and you have that sense of um, looking outwards and seeking other like-minded people in the world, I think, and that's the sort of thing that I increasingly try to approach in my writing. I'll just um, correct you there. It's not where the Welsh speakers live. It's that um, being Welsh speaking was the most significant um, okay. indicator of voting to stay in the UK, in the UK, in the <laughs> EU. <laughs> so out of, uh, you know, uh, the, the way that the vote uh, played out among Welsh speakers was that 84% of Welsh speakers voted to remain in the EU and 16% voted to leave the EU. And that indicator was a stronger indicator than age, stronger than gender, stronger than urban or rural, and stronger than socioeconomic class and stronger than educational level. So it does yeah, sorry, sort of give you an, uh, an idea of this difference in perspective, but also possibly a different, a more balanced diet of news and current affairs 
um, more than one BBC voice even. The BBC voice in Wales wasn't always the same as the BBC in Welsh, sorry, as the BBC voice in English. It just gives you perhaps a little bit more perspective. Um, Michal, you wanted to come in uh, on that point. There is the opinion in Ireland at the moment among some people that the next wave of maybe good Irish writers might be immigrants. Uh, as you know, for years, people immigrated from, from Ireland, you know, t in their millions. It's only 20 years ago for the first time we had people coming to Ireland to work for us when there was a shortage. And there's a wave of new people. There are maybe 300,000 Polish people living in Ireland and lots of people from different countries, Latvia, Lithuania, etc. So there's this, this idea that maybe the next generation could very well be immigrants who have come to Ireland. And I've seen some of the things that they write and they, they see us in another different way, which I find very interesting and very entertaining and funny at, at times that they, they can see things that we don't see ourselves, if you know what I mean. So I, I'm looking forward to that, to reading that generation. And I, I think, sorry, um, uh, well, one thing that's really interesting to me as well is um, there's more and more research being done now in Wales as well on the use of Welsh among uh, people who have uh, immigrated in, uh, into Wales. So Wales, uh, well, rather than this, again, this sort of monolingual way of thinking of assimilation of if you come to live in Britain, you have to learn English. There's the sense that Welsh can be a language, uh, you know, it's something that we're trying to promote anyway, is this sense that Welsh is a language for all people in Wales. And, and so uh, it's again, Th this question that you you're asked, Bella, why do you want to learn uh, uh, and speak that language or write in that language? It's seen as um, because it's a small language. It's seen as something that shrinks your world, whereas in reality, it's something that infinitely expands your world and your worldview. I think. We'd like to um, see if there are any comments or or, or questions um, on the discussion that we've been having so far, or on any other aspect of. Uh, the subject that we're, we're going to address. So if, if you have a comment or a question, please uh, please let us, uh, please show by hand or, or, or something and we, we can get it, get the question in before we close the session. Uh, Bell, the, um, the idea of Catalan as the common language or as the language of social inclusion in Catalonia has been something that's been propagated for quite some time now and it's in, in fact it's kind of in recognition of of a way of saying that everybody has the right to the Catalan language regardless of who your family is or who your family were where you've come from or where your families come from and how you identify yourselves and 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 so that's been quite a major project in terms of making the language accessible to 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 many people. What what do you, what is the state of play with that today? I, is that still something that's uh, very high on 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 the priority list? It is it is very high on the priority list, and um, it's also very high on the priority list uh, of the Spanish state uh, to destroy. So I, I was born on um, 1977, uh, right after Franco died, two years after he died. And um, so I grew up in the 80s. And um, as you know, Catalan was forbidden during the dictatorship. It was not allowed. It was not taught at school. 
So I was part of the first generation who learned Catalan at school uh, again after dictatorship. Before dictatorship, obviously, you, you learn Catalan at school. So I was part of this experiment, which was called uh, language immersion. And I grew up in a neighborhood with a 97% um, percentage of migrant people who came basically from the rest of Spain. Uh, that has changed over the years and 30 years later, um, it is now um, uh, people basically from the north of Africa who live there. It's still a, a, a neighborhood of migrant people, but now they come from other places. Um, and a lot of the people who grew up there, we have moved somewhere else. Um, so what they did was, in, especially in these neighborhoods where most people were Spanish speakers, they thought it was really important um, for us to feel included in society that we could learn Catalan. So they would do the immersion, which means that you basically you learned everything in Catalan. So mathematics or history or geography or whatever you were learning, you were learning, you were learning in Catalan because they knew that was the only exposure uh, you, the real exposure you got to language because at home you would speak something else, basically Spanish. So throughout the years, uh, the composition of, of these neighborhoods has changed uh, radically. So now, as you said, we have in some schools, um, children speak uh, like 230 languages. So there are 230 different languages which are mother tongues for children going to these schools. So Catalan is uh, the language that they learn at school and that they share. Um, but obviously Spanish is the language that they learn uh, outside school, uh, in the streets and on through TV and whatever, uh, and which they also share. Um, so there's kind of, um, we call it dysglossia in Catalan, I'm not sure what you call it in English, dysglossia, diglossia, uh, in which you use different languages for different contexts and that's still happening. Um, but there's a lot of um, effort being put in, in making Catalan something common that we share and something that is like a, a door to other people and other communities. And that is living together with Spanish being really present on the streets and, and being like a very powerful language in Catalonia as well, obviously. And Michal, um, Irish is a shared national language in, in your context as well, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, if we look at the census figures that, you know, we have well over a million speakers. It's the first official language of the state. Um, the engagement, perhaps deep engagement with, with Irish is, 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 is not at, at that level. But do you, see it, do you see any kind of change in the way in which the population in Irish, in Ireland, sorry, of from, from different kinds of backgrounds that are, are engaging with the language or, or that have a relationship with, with Irish and Irish reading, perhaps? Uh, yeah, it depends on one day I'm in a good mood about it, the next day I'm in a bad mood. Um, the language is under pressure in the Irish-speaking area. Uh, the English is pushing in all the time from the rest of Ireland, from the UK, from the USA, all the mass media, the movies, pop music, everything is in English. So even those who make a conscious decision to speak Irish only to their kids, uh, their kids should be speaking English back to them when they are seven, eight, nine, ten, because they see English everywhere. So that unfortunately, the as I said, the greatest of our Irish-speaking area is under pressure, and. Gradually, I suppose more and more people are turning to English. But there's also a strong 
contingents are people who are making a special effort to promote, uh, to preserve the language in the, in the Irish-speaking area, which is something we need because the people from the rest of the country come to, the come to us to learn the language. On the other hand, uh, same as in the schools, we have this immersion in all Irish language school where we teach mathematics, geography, history, everything to Irish. They are popping up all over the place, all over the country. And uh, parents making a conscious decision to send their kids to an all Irish language school. So the Irish language is doing quite well in the cities and in the big towns. So it's a kind of a up and down situation. Oh yeah, sorry, maybe I was not clear about it. In Catalonia, every public school, um, every state school, you learn everything in Catalan and you have a few hours of Spanish. So it's like the comprehensive school for everybody. But I was mentioning the these um, like more complex neighborhoods because, yeah, just to make a point of it, yeah. And what does, that, uh, what does that mean for reading and the future of literature in, well, there in your language, in, in Welsh, the, the way that, um, you know, where, where more children are being educated in Welsh? That's, that's an that excellent question to ask right at the end of the session. I haven't got a clue, but I think a lot of that chimes with me in the sense that, you know, I, I live in Cardiff, uh, the capital city, I come from Carnarvon, uh, uh, one of the um, most well-speaking areas in terms of percentage, and you have, again, a, a comparable situation to uh, what you had, Michal, where there's a sense of encroachment on some of those well-speaking heartlands, if you will, but in places like Cardiff, the schools are full to the brim, you know, and we're having to sort of think about registering our uh, son now for primary school, even though he's not two yet, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but uh, I think one of the issues that arises from that, I'll just say it very quickly before we finish, is, is that perception, okay, if you want a good education, if you want a good job, then you send your, Welsh, uh, your kids to a Welsh school, and that can only be a, go a good thing for the language. But we have to be careful at the same time that it's not lost as a community language and as a language of the playground. Um, uh, you have to ensure that, yes, it's a language of education and of um, formal instruction, but that's no good if the kids go out then to the playground and speak English to each other. So, and, and cracking that, I think, is... Uh, that's have you got about two or three more hours? <laughs> yeah. So if it can become the language of leisure and if it can become the language of emotional engagement, it can become the language of reading and of literature in the end. So thank you very much to the three panelists. We have to close the Just session two now. seconds. Um, I'm pretty sure that you are aware of the very difficult political situation in my country right now. And I would recommend you to go uh, to a talk that's called Silence is Not an Option. It's going to be held at 7 tonight uh, at Studierenhaus uh, Unicampus Bockenheim. And it's really interesting people talking, so please go and find out more. Thank you very much for this uh, panel session. Thank you. And there is also a, an a Literature Ireland drinks reception at 5 o'clock in Hall 6 to row A122 to A123. And we're all invited to that as well. Thank you very much, panelists.